Welcome to the Making Artists podcast, where artists learn how to stop starving, struggling, and aspiring, and instead, start making. You don't need a fine arts degree, a trust fund, or a more supportive family to be a successful artist. You just need to let your creativity lead you all the way to the top. I am fellow artist and professional certified coach, Nancy Sun, and I teach artists just like you how to make art, money, and an impact without giving up or burning out. Listen to learn how. Hey artists, welcome to the first episode of the 2023 mini season. And I am starting with a special treat, an episode or episodes all about things artist related to Taylor Swift. Yes, I am talking about mother and mother mothering. After all, Tis the damn season. And for the few of you who don't know who Taylor Swift is and why we are talking about Taylor Swift, let me just give you a little bio. She is a 33-year-old American singer-songwriter with 10 albums who started on country radio, but whose sound now includes pop, indie or alt-rock, and some of her tracks even have a hip-hop influence. She is most recently known for re-recording her first six albums when the label she recorded the original masters with, Big Machine Records, sold them to a venture capital firm instead of to her against her wishes. Now you can find these re-records on music streaming services and for sale with in parentheses, Taylor's version, aka TV for short, at the end. And depending on when you listen to this podcast, Taylor Swift is currently on The Eras Tour, which celebrates each album as an era in her oeuvre. And this is a treat for us because I am not here to gossip about Taylor's personal life or her public persona, which... If we did, some of you might also consider a treat. Instead, I'm gonna talk about how Taylor Swift identifies as an artist, makes art, shares it, sells it to make a fuck ton of money, and makes an impact. So what is a fuck ton of money? For those who don't know, by the end of October 2023, she made the Forbes billionaires list and is valued at 1.1 billion and climbing. She is the first musician to join these ranks based on the sales of her albums, songs, specials, and performances alone. That means she doesn't have any income streams yet beyond her art, and art-adjacent mediums and activities like tour swag, etc. She currently has no startup investments, no alcohol, health, skincare, or beauty lines, and not that there'd necessarily be anything wrong if she did make income from that. But I want to highlight that it is possible to become a billionaire exclusively from making your art because we have an example of one person who did it. Her most recent The Eras Tour has also made at least 780 million so far, and it's not over. Her concert film of the same name, currently still in theaters, has also made 150 million domestically and 200 million globally. It's currently the second highest grossing concert film release after Michael Jackson's This Is It. And Taylor Swift uses her status and platform as a globally famous artist to make an impact. First of all, just listeners like me see themselves in her songs and lyrics and feel seen. I don't want to dismiss or minimize that. Her art in itself is sufficient to make an impact. Her music creates connection. It creates empathy, self-compassion, 
catharsis, and community. And her success makes her a role model for other singer-songwriters. And after this episode of Making Artists, I hope that her success makes her a role model for you too. She also amplifies the work of other artists, having Paramore, Haim, Sabrina Carpenter, Phoebe Bridgers, Gracie Abrams, etc. as her opening acts, inviting Marcus Mumford of Mumford & Sons, Aaron Dessner of The Nationals, and Ice Spice as her surprise guests. This is not an exhaustive list. And she also gives other artists work. She employs choreographers, dancers, crew, and in the U.S., she insures them. And she's even given them a residual income stream through the Eras Tour concert film and a SAG-AFTRA interim agreement. She gave $55 million in bonuses so far to everyone working on her tour, including most notably to the long-haul drivers responsible for making sure her equipment gets everywhere safely. Now, beyond just the business and artistry of being Taylor Swift, she has also gotten 65,000 U.S. citizens registered to vote via her social media post in 2020, given to food banks on every stop of her domestic tour, donated to the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, Black Lives Matter, advocated for women's rights, reproductive rights, and LGBTQIA rights. And artists, this is not an exhaustive list of her personal and professional achievements. I am highlighting these simply to open up what you think is possible, not only for you, but for the world when you succeed as an artist. Before working with me, a lot of my clients don't pursue making art full-time or as a profession because they think that making art is frivolous, making art is selfish, and trying to get other people to buy your art only benefits one person, you, the selfish artist. And your success will be at the expense of all the ways you could have and should have been contributing to society instead. So Taylor Swift and her impact on listeners, but also on people creatively, professionally, politically, and philanthropically tells us that this story doesn't have to be true. A win for your success as an artist can also be a win for all the causes you support and a win for your vision of the world. Fun fact, I have set up my coaching practice to be the same way, to be a win, win, win. When an artist decides to coach with me, they obviously are investing in their own success, which is win number one. And they're also investing in my success as a coach, fellow artist, and human. That's win number two. And because they are giving money to a business run by a queer first-generation woman of color, they're also investing in a more diverse, inclusive, and equitable world. Win number three. And to drive this win-win-win home, three-fourths of the businesses my coaching practice spends money on are also not men-owned. And one-third are also owned by people of color. I share this so you know exactly what world you are creating when you choose to work with me. And also, so you know you don't need to have achieved a Taylor Swift level of success in order to be an artist making an impact. You can just pull inspiration from her right now and apply it to your life right now, just as I have. 
Now, I've given you a lot of receipts for why Taylor Swift makes a great case study for this episode and how she offers so many lessons on how to be a successful, professional, and impactful artist who makes art. But you might still have some resistance. When I shared with non-Swifties, I was recording this, so Swifties is slang for Swift fans, so non-Swifties are not Swift fans, I was met with two objections. Objection number one, isn't all her music about her love life, and isn't it gross that she's just capitalizing on her famous exes? That's not the kind of art I like, or the art I want to make. To which I say, great, you decided you are not the intended audience for her music. Even though, of course, I would argue that she has something for everyone. You don't need to be in her listener demographic in order to benefit from her best practices on the artist's journey. From coaching artists over a thousand hours, I stopped counting after that, I learned that while everyone's journey is unique to them, there are some common blocks we all have and common solutions to overcome them. Just because we're all steeped in the same zeitgeist. So in this episode, I really encourage you to not throw out the baby with the bathwater by not giving yourself access to these best practices simply because I've chosen Tay-Tay as the example and messenger. Just take what you need and circle the rest in disappearing ink. As for objection number two, it's some form of, wasn't her dad like really, really rich? And didn't he like literally invest in the first record label that signed her? To which my response is, Yes, he did, or at least the internet says it's true. And what this objection wants me to acknowledge is that Taylor Swift has some privileges that gave her unearned advantages in life and the music industry. And I agree. I acknowledge these privileges. She has pretty privilege. She is white. She is cisgender and heteropassing. She is a U.S. citizen. She was born to an educated upper-middle-class family. But artists with love, you and I have some privileges too. If you are listening to this in the year of Beyonce 2023, you have access to the internet likely from a smartphone. You are able to hear. You understand the English language. And according to the demographics of people who listen to podcasts, 85% of you have attended or are in college. 84% of you are young, under the age of 55, and have age privilege. 55% of you have male privilege. 51% of you have a full-time job. And you are one-third more likely to be currently making $75,000 or more than the average U.S. person. In fact, one in five of you make at least $100,000. So... While it's easy to scrutinize Taylor Swift's privilege, I say this with the utmost love. How are you acknowledging and using your own privilege, even when you may also have unearned disadvantages? I mean, hey, Taylor was born female. Taylor Swift doesn't have a college degree. Well, until NYU gave her an honorary doctorate last year, And what are you using your privilege in service of? Or how are you allowing others to use their privilege? As a parent, I don't begrudge Taylor Swift's parents, Scott and Andrea, for investing in their child's dreams. 
even when other moms and dads and humans have opinions about this parenting decision and overall might catch some feelings about it, including jealousy. So, yes, while Taylor Swift's dad invested 120k early in an equity stake in Big Machine Records when she signed with them as a teenager, I'm just going to ask you, do you let people support your art abundantly and however they can, including with their dollars? To be honest, I was going to hold off on dropping this particular lesson, but hey, we're here now, so I might as well do my dragging. Even if they don't have 120k to give, do you allow others to give whatever they want to and can to support your dream? I say this because I see too many artists who are not able to receive, including and especially financially. I know actors who don't count direct offers or bookings when it comes from their playwright, screenwriter, director, or producer friends. I know copywriters who don't feel like they know how to get gigs or don't deserve credit for them because they all came from their network. And I know visual artists who don't follow up when a friend or family member says, ooh, I want that painting, and maybe even how much. Now, I don't know what happened behind closed doors. I don't know if Taylor Swift argued with her parents or if she said, no, I wanna pull myself up by my own bootstraps and do this on my own. I don't know if she felt embarrassed by her dad, but ultimately she let people help her and not anyone. She let friends and family help her. She let her friends and her family help her with her artistic career. Do you let your inner circle help you with yours? especially when it comes to their wallet. So I guess here we are already with our first lesson in just sharing this objection, which is let your friends and family and whoever else buy what you're selling. Let them invest in you and invest in your future because who knows, Maybe this is a part of their vision of themselves, perhaps connoisseurs, advocates of the arts, or the vision that they have for the world. Okay, so how I originally envisioned introducing these lessons to you was um, in three different chapters. And these chapters align with the steps I believe artists must take in order to become a creative success and a career working artist. So first, I want to direct you to an episode from last season that might help you understand the framework for this episode, and that is steps to creative success the link will be available in the show notes. But just as a brief recap, I offer from my experience as an actor and writer who has made money from this skill and craft, and also as a coach who have supported creatives having their own businesses and making money with their art, that really there are only three steps that you need to take in order to make art making your career. And those three steps are make your art, share your art, and ask others for what your art needs. I'm gonna say it again. The only three steps you need to become a creative success are make your art, share your art, and ask others for what your art needs. And Taylor Swift has mastered 
these three steps. I say this not knowing actually how Taylor Swift views herself. I don't know if she considers herself a success as an artist. I don't know if she is satisfied, creatively fulfilled, financially fulfilled, uh, happy with the impact that she is making on the world. And the first lesson is you can be an artist and still have doubt. You are allowed to feel the feeling of doubt and still be an artist. I think about how in the Miss Americana documentary, she had a lot of reservations about whether or not she would be able to continue being the kind of artist that she wanted to be. At some point in this documentary, she said, this is probably one of my last opportunities as an artist to grasp onto that kind of success. So as I'm reaching 30, I want to work really hard while society is still tolerating me being successful. And we look at this particular moment in time and we laugh because this is the version of Taylor before her $780 million world tour that is still in process and before all of her re-records have been successfully uh, bought by her fans and before she has been launched into her billionaire status. She had the doubt as to whether or not at this age of 33, society would still buy what she's selling. And we now know from that moment, she still forged ahead, made, I want to say, three or four new albums in addition to all these re-records and took the steps to share this art and ask people, hey, do you want to buy? Do you want to watch me perform, etc." So this lesson is allow space for doubt. Doubting does not mean you won't be successful. This is a lesson that I teach and remind my clients of all the time. Whenever we as humans feel uncomfortable physical sensations or emotions such as doubt, we often start to think about what it could possibly mean and doom spiral into thinking, this must mean something bad about me. When really it's just a normal part of the artist's journey and sim even simply being a human. To offer a personal example, all of the auditions that I book, I did not leave the room 100% confident that I booked them, or I did not not experience doubt for the entire duration of the audition. I think about one role that I really wanted. It was a lead role in a world premiere play at Humana Festival. And Humana Festival is no longer a play festival that is still in production, but at the time it was considered the Sundance of independent regional theater. And during the callback for this particular opportunity, I experienced a lot of doubt. I experienced doubt because even though I had planned, as always, to be 15 minutes early to the audition, I think I was 15 or more minutes late. It was severe enough that I remember emailing casting while my train was in stuck in a tunnel to let them know that I would be behind. And I thought spiraled and I thought this must be a sign that this role was not meant for me. I got experienced doubt. Then in the actual audition, the audition was two sides, one of which was a scene, and the entire scene is a monologue. It's just me talking. 
And when we get to this scene, where whereas I nailed it in my initial audition, this time I fumble. I mix up the words. I lose my sense of pace and rhythm. And I have to stop the audition and ask if I can start the whole thing over. And in that moment, again, negative feelings, doubt, uncertainty, shame, embarrassment, wondering, oh, is this the end of my career as a theater actress, perhaps before it has even begun? Just to give you a sense of my brain, also human, just like you and many of my coaching clients. And in the end, spoiler alert, I booked it. So me experiencing moments of doubt before my audition and in my audition, and even having created some evidence for why somebody would not want me, right? I am not punctual, even though I text and email to let people know in advance when I am late. And I fumble the bag and appear as if I am cannot repeat what I did in my first audition or can't be off book in an essential scene where I am the only character, right? So I experienced doubt and I also was afraid that the people who were casting would catch my doubt. And ultimately, experiencing doubt does not preclude you from being a successful artist. In fact, I want you to consider that your capacity for doubt is actually what will enable you to take greater risks, produce more failures so that you can experience greater success. There's a quote that says, something to the effect of an expert is somebody who's experienced the greatest number of failures in a narrow field. I got the quote wrong, but I think you understand the spirit of that particular statement. And I want to offer that is true for you too. Give yourself permission to experience the greatest number of failures in a narrow chosen field? And can you give yourself permission to choose that field to be your art? So by now we already have covered two explicit lessons that we can get from Taylor Swift as a successful artist. The first one being allowing others to support you, including financially, including intimate friends and family, and also allowing yourself to feel doubt and not letting it stop you from pursuing your art, normalizing the feeling of doubt. Okay, so I already went off script a touch by giving you certain lessons early, but I really want to focus the rest of this episode specifically on how Taylor Swift is a great case study for a successful artist be simply because she makes art. She makes her art, which is the first step to creative success. I have so many clients who come to me because they identify as aspiring artists, artists who wish they could write their great American novel or finish their screenplay or practice painting consistently, but they somehow can't. And sometimes what our coaching conversations reveal is that they can't because they have some all or nothing thinking. And what I mean by that is they see someone else's great American novel, someone else's Oscar award-winning screenplay, someone else's masterpiece hanging at the Louvre or the MoMA, and they compare their beginning to someone else's entire body of work, maybe even at the end of their glorious career. And it stops them in their tracks from even beginning. And often what I work with them on is giving themselves permission 
to start taking a step, any step, any breadth of step for any length of time on their artist's journey. Because I think the reason why we see Taylor Swift experience such monumental success at the age of 33, right? And it could be really dangerous for us to start comparing where we are now to her billionaire status at an age where she may be our age or maybe even younger than us. I, I say that as an elder millennial. So is my elder millennialness showing? If anything, the lesson to take from Taylor is to just get started, keep going at a regular, consistent pace that works for you, and just continue to make investments in your 10,000 hours of expertise. Let me explain. Taylor signed with her first record label at age 15, which means her 10 albums and probably even more songs are the product of 18 years of regular, consistent, creative practice, if not more, because obviously she had to have had some mastery of the skill of singing, writing songs, etc., to even reach a point in development where a label would sign her. So we need to remind ourselves that it took at least 18 years for her to reach this point and for her to reach this specific financial status. However, it started with just taking steps frequently, consistently, with focused energy and attention. And then she just let the interest on that time, energy, and focus investment compound. So my first invitation is for you to allow yourself to have a regular, consistent, step-by-step creative practice. So you're simply making investments in your art and actually making art, which is what Taylor has been doing for at least 18 years and likely longer, which is what resulted in this big body of work that we see now. But it starts with one lyric, one hook, one chorus, one bridge, one song. You cannot have an EP without one note. And that's what she has been incredibly great about doing time and time again. So to give yourself permission to just cultivate a practice. There's even a interview clip that I saw of her where she says, don't let anything stop you from making art. Just make things. Don't get so caught up in this that it stops you from making art. Or if you need to, make art about this but never stop making things. So I want to give that to you too. Be unconditional in your love and commitment to your creative practice. Something that I have been offering for the end of 2023 is actually a virtual co-working session, or as I like to call it, a virtual co-creating session every Monday where On Mondays at 12 noon for two hours, I host a meeting on Zoom where anyone can join in to make a contribution towards their creative goals. So we launched this last week. We have, I think, at least 50 people on the RSVP list for this recurring event. And eight people showed to start taking these regular, consistent, small or big steps towards their goals to continue making things and never stop making things. In the event that you're interested in this event, I will make sure that there's a link available in the show notes so that you can RSVP and you can participate too. So yes, keep making things, never stop making things, 
and just let the snowball effect do its thing. Let the interest on your investment in your artistic practice to compound. And the next lesson is very much just a natural next step progression of the one before it. Because if you never stop making things and you keep making things, the result is you will have made a lot of stuff. So this lesson is don't be afraid to make a lot of stuff that you think sucks, that you don't like, that you don't think other people will like, etc. The only way to discover what doesn't suck, what you like, what you think other people will like is by is by embracing the shadow self of this journey. How is this a lesson from Taylor Swift? Well, we know that Taylor Swift creates more songs for each album, more lyrics and verses for each song than necessarily sees the light of day. How do we know this? Well, this is something that she has talked about in interviews. For instance, the initial version of All Too Well included additional verses and additional lyrics that didn't make the initial album, which is why she had a 10-minute version that she could release with her Taylor's version of Red. We also know that there are so many bonus tracks that she releases and it, with her deluxe versions of each album. And in each of the Taylor's version re-records, she has offered certain new additional tracks that she calls From the Vault. From this experience, we know that there are probably even more songs further deeper in the vault that we may never see, but she has written, she may have produced, etc. And this is important because I believe it is through this process of abundantly making that she has probably been able to find her sound and become an even better songwriter and even better lyricist because she's simply given herself more practice. In fact, I came across a 2015 or 2016 interview where Taylor said, the reason I like to take two years to make an album is because I like to let it become what it's going to become on its own. When I start making an album, I usually spend six months writing and writing and writing. And then usually all that stuff gets that gets written in the first six months gets thrown out because those songs can be great, but they sound too much like the last album and not like the new album. It takes a while for you to realize you're creating a new sound. I just have to follow those artistic impulses. So Taylor writes and writes and writes and she writes her way into her new sound, her new style, her new brand, or at least the brand for her new album. And I wanna give you as an artist the same lesson in privileging volume over preciousness or perfection over any individual piece of art that you are making in the process because it is through putting yourself through the paces of a creative practice over and over again that you will become a better artist. You will be discover your own style. There is this book called Trust the Process by Shane McNulty. I have the link available in the show notes, which anecdotally talks about a study where there were two pottery classes that were judged for their final grade based on two different metrics. One class was judged on the weight and volume of the amount of clay they threw the entire semester. And the other class was judged on 
one final piece that they would make. So they were only judged on one piece of art. And what was discovered was that actually the skill and craft of the pottery throwers that were aiming for a volume grade was better, more improved, and more advanced than the pottery throwers that were simply graded on the quality of one specific final piece because those pottery throwers became too precious, refining, 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 not throwing a lot of clay, just working on one piece. And that actually had a negative impact on their overall evolution and development as an artist. This is a lesson that I really focus, especially on delivering to any of my clients that are working on a collection, whether that be a fashion designer, a jewelry designer, a visual artist, etc. Frequently, this category of artist is really interested or anxious about whether or not they will develop a signature style or if they have a signature style or they're tentative about introducing themselves without a signature style. And I always encourage them that this style can be found through the process and not to let them not yet having a style or a brand or a voice stop them from being in process. So if you relate to this struggle and need support, know that I am available to help you with that in my coaching practice. Back to Taylor, another lesson that we can learn from her making art practice is she allows each song to be born the way that they were meant to be born. She's not precious about a process for a former song or a former hit suddenly becoming the formula for all subsequent songs and all subsequent hits. On certain albums where she has had deluxe editions, she has shared voice notes that give us a peek behind the curtain to the writing process of any particular song. And from this, we learn that sometimes a song is born from a specific lyric. For instance, she talks about how for Blank Space, a lot of the song was written before she entered the studio. And it was incredibly quick to write because she had all the lyrics kind of floating around in her brain already, including Darling, I'm a Nightmare, Dressed Like a Daydream. Then there are other songs that were born from listening to the piece of music that those lyrics would be set against. I believe this practice is called writing to track. So for instance, for the song, I Wish You Would, that was a track that Jack Antonoff composed that he shared with Taylor Swift, who was inspired and compelled to write lyrics to. This is also the way that many of the songs on Folklore and Evermore were born in that she would get, I don't know, because I don't know all the parts of songwriting or songs, but she would get snippets like musical snippets, melodies, sounds from Aaron Dessner of the Nationals and would write according to what she got from that particular audio experience, or she would write to complement that audio experience, both in terms of lyrics and melody, and of course, her infamous bridges. I say this because she did not codify or attribute the success of a song, whether that be how much she liked it, how much other people liked it, and how big of a hit it would become to its specific songwriting process and then try to replicate that experience again and again. So she did not constrain herself as an artist 
to only make art one specific way. I say this because I meet so many artists who incidentally see what successful artists do or hear in interviews about one particular artist's process and then they take that as the Bible, the first, last, and only way one should be learning one's lines, rehearsing, writing, shooting films, etc. As a mom, I often think about uh, the birth story, right, of my child or any child. And a joke I heard, I'm not sure if it was a doula joke, an OB-GYN joke, etc. But a successful birth is simply getting the baby out alive. Ideally, with both the mother and the baby healthy. That's it. That's all a birth story needs. That's all labor is supposed to do. It doesn't or shouldn't matter if it is a C-section, if the baby was induced, if it was a vaginal birth, how long the labor was. The only thing that matters is the baby is out, alive, and healthy. And the birth story has no bearing on how good of a parent you are or how good of a child your baby is what your birth plan was and how closely you adhered to it is not a determinant of how worthy you are as a parent or how worthy your baby is. And this metaphor applies to your art, whether or not or how much you struggled or how easy it was to make something doesn't mean anything about you as a human and as an artist and doesn't really mean anything about how great or well-received, how successful, whatever piece of art you just made will be. So maybe the best way to think of this lesson is, and I know I'm continuing to pile on metaphors, is to think of your creative process more like cooking instead of baking, where you, the chef, are the most essential ingredient to determining the yumminess of your dish. And it's not so scientific, stiff, formal, codified, scientific, that you have to measure and bake things at certain degrees and in certain quantities in order to produce a super yummy piece of art. And I guess this metaphor also holds because cooking is an art. Making art is an art. And so to allow yourself to think of that as a skill to cultivate over a formula you can rinse and repeat and rinse and repeat. Because then robots could do it instead of humans. And I'm giving this lesson because I see so many creatives who want the secret how-to for how to make something. And they give away all their agency and power to a step-by-step -step process or beat themselves up because they are not adhering to a step-by-step -step process. When instead of listening to what their intuition wants them to do, how their intuition wants them to create, and having their own back to do it that way. So for instance, I am working with a client who is writing a book that they have always wanted to write since they were a child. This is an incredibly healing journey for them to fulfill this childhood wish of writing a book. And if you look on the internet, there are all these specific ways, steps, etc., that other people write books. And usually when people think about writing, they often think that they have to write in a sequential order. And this is not something that necessarily appeals to my client. Writing according to other people's instruction manuals 
and in a linear sequential order is actually what has stopped them from writing altogether. So now we are discovering what her writing process is for her and specifically what is the way that this book wants to be written and we're listening to that dialogue and that inquiry instead of the shoulds and it always delights me to witness an artist discovering their process and actually seeing something through to the finish so the lesson here as modeled by taylor is to let each piece of art be born the way it wants to or was meant to be born as opposed to how you think it should be born and the last lesson from taylor swift on the step of making your art is let the resources you have be enough of her songwriting process taylor has shared that she keeps track of a lot of her ideas simply on voice memos and in her notes app so taylor swift is an artist just like you who does a chunk of her songwriting on her phone now be honest is your art too good for your phone do you need to have a specific location and a huge chunk of unscheduled time in order to practice your craft now just as much as i'm sure that taylor could make that happen for herself i.e book studio time to write songs she's also an incredibly busy woman and just accepts that a lot of songwriting has to happen on the fly or a moment of inspiration can happen at any point and that putting it in her notes app or humming a tune to herself for later can be enough in this moment. She lets these resources be enough for her inspiration. Also, I learned from watching Folklore, The Long Pond Sessions, that while she previously had the luxurious resource of external studios in which to record her music, she did not have a in-home studio in her residence. Of course, this may have changed now or may have changed by the time that she had recorded Evermore, but we see in this documentary that she used a guest room with a microphone and a bunch of sound blankets as her recording booth. Granted, she also had an audio engineer with her who probably made the booth or zhuzhed up the sound in post-production. But I was astounded that the initial rough recording happened just in a regular room with a bunch of sound blankets muffling sound. I say this because I have a client who does voiceover work who at one point considered investing in a four-figure fancy voiceover booth to install in his home. Fast forward, he did not end up making that investment. And to put this in perspective, this voiceover booth probably would have only been used for auditions or at least primarily for auditions which is a far cry from the kind of equipment Taylor was using and for what purpose. But I share this because uh, she did not have access to certain resources when she recorded Folklore Evermore because it was the time of COVID. In fact, this also impacted her songwriting experience because she had to work with her co-writers and her co-producers remotely, which is not something that she had previously experienced. But she didn't let the idea that she didn't have the resources that she normally has or would have wanted 
to get in the way of her showing up for her creative practice, her fulfilling her own creative impulses to write songs in early pandemic. And this is a really important lesson for a lot of artists who feel like they can't create when they don't have the right or perfect tools. The only primary and essential tool for your art is you. You showing up. You showing up regularly and consistently. Whatever that means for you and your art. You showing up and also being in dialogue and dancing and figuring out what exactly your art needs, what the process is that your art wants in order to be born and not measuring the success and the quality of your art by its artistic process and allowing the resources you have available to you, the circumstances that you are creating in to be enough or even in fact perfectly imperfect or even a positive influence on the final outcome and result that will be your masterpiece. I hope that you can find this value in these lessons through the case study of Taylor Swift. Her songs, her albums, and her mastery at this particular moment in time. In the event that examples from her Wikipedia page don't feel relatable, I hope you were able to find the examples rooted in my own personal journey as an artist or in the journeys of my clients as artists. Something that you can empathize with and model yourself after. And I want to acknowledge that you might be listening to this and thinking none of those particular solutions are solutions to my problem, to the problem that is stopping me from overcoming my block, my obstacle, my stuckness in the process of simply making art. In which case, I suggest reaching out to me. The good news is, right now, in the end of the year 2023, my coaching practice is open. I'm currently having conversations with artists just like you on how they can level up in their career. And your level up may be simply be, how do I start, let myself be in process, or finish my art, or even choose which of the many projects that are floating in my brain to focus on. I am totally down for any of those conversations to support the world being a more creatively abundant place. So I hope this episode so far has been a win-win-win. Now, because the episode has already been so long, I'm going to honor my hunch and say right now there is going to be likely one follow-up episode in which I talk about how Taylor has mastered the other two steps to creative success, and that is the step of sharing your art with perhaps as many people as possible, and then step three, asking others for what your art needs, perhaps with as many people as possible, sufficient to getting your art's needs met. These are just some of the things that you can expect through the rest of this mini season. Thank you so much for listening and being an artist committed to the journey of making art. Until next time. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Making Artists podcast. Are you ready to start making your best art, money, and life right now? Good news. You can coach with me to make it all happen. Book your free consult at 
www.makingartistspodcast.com. That's makingartists, plural with an S, dot com. Link available in the show notes. Or just keep in touch via Instagram and TikTok at the Nancy Sun. Or subscribe to my newsletter. Link also available in the show notes. Want to help more artists find this podcast? Subscribe, rate, and review Making Artists wherever you listen to this episode. 